This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So I'm very happy to be here back in Yucca Valley for the 37th year. Kind of amazing. And this morning I want to continue the collective conversation on what they call in Zen the great matter, which is death and identity and the heavenly messengers. How many of you have sat with the dying hospice or in other ways? How many haven't where that's yet ahead for you? It will happen. Good. And, and, and it's important and moving and special. How many of you, well, I have to give a little context for this. Um, I helped to organize a big meeting of 230 Buddhist teachers um, a couple of years ago on the East Coast. And we were polling the teachers in various fashions about their understanding, their problems, and so forth. And then we asked, in really honest ways, all right, how many of you believe in more than one life, believe in rebirth? Um, kind of a line down the middle of the room. About half of them crossed the line, yes. Half of them didn't. A bunch of them just straddled the line in the middle. Um, how many of you believe um, that there's some kind of life after death? How many don't? How many straddle the line? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, if we were to incorporate themes of what's up for you this morning, if I'm able to, uh, given that this is now headed toward the end of this second retreat, um, even without a mic, you can just kind of raise your hand quickly. What, uh, you know, what do you hope that I might touch on? A word or two or three? Anybody? Grief? Okay. And I guess you've done some of that this week. What happens? Great. You want all the answers, right? Hmm? What happens next? Yes. What did you say? Non-duality. As opposed to duality. 
You have to watch out for those non-duality people, by the way. There. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> at death, at and after. Good. Any other questions? What? Awakening. What's that? Yeah, exactly. And we sleep. Isn't that wonderful? And then we get worried about going to sleep. Okay. Living now. How to prepare for death and practice. Who dies? Thank you. Who's going to be there to think? Who's going to be there, what, to think after you die? Uh -huh. So it's sort of the same who dies and who will be there to think about it. Okay, well, no problem. <laughs> because I'm, I'm going to give away the plot. Before the end of the morning, we are going to do a past life regression. So you'll get to have some, not everybody, but some of you might have some weird experiences which you can share with one another. And that will, and maybe we'll go through some past deaths too, which is as interesting as past lives. They're actually connected, as you'll see. So it helps to hear your topics and themes and questions. So my mom just died a couple weeks ago, 91, and peacefully for the most part. But it wasn't completely peacefully. If you've done hospice work or sat with people who are dying, Mostly she was ready, 91, enough. Um, she was also losing a lot of her memory. But in the last days, um, there'd be moments where she'd hold her hands up, her eyes sort of half closed, say, help, help. And then I'd, you know, touch her shoulder and kind of hold her and reassure her. She didn't want her body touched very much. It was like distracting to her. And I'd say, it's okay. It's really all right. It'll be fine. And it's actually going to get better. You'll see. She'd go, oh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, you know, and relax. Um, so what does it mean to be with somebody in the process of dying? Not to speak of ourselves. And how do we, how do we face this mystery of birth and death with a wise heart? So Ajahn Chah, my teacher, when he, um, first responded to this invitation to send monks to England. Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you know, was the first senior monk who'd been an abbot there um, to go to England. Um, and they had a little apartment, a couple of monks in Ajahn Chah. Um, and it was in downtown somewhere in London before they had their forest monastery. And Ajahn Chah insisted that Sumedho go out with his alms bowl every morning, he said, for several reasons. He said, I know you don't get much, much. You didn't get anything. One time people put a little food in there, you know, walking by somebody put like a cliff bar or something in there. And then, you know, a kid walked by and looked in there and took the cliff bar out. Right? <laughs> so, but Ajahn Chah said, if you don't go out with your alms bowl, uh, then people will never learn how to take care of a monk. So you have to go 
And then you, if people ask, you stop and you explain that you're an alms mendicant. It happened that he was walking near Hyde Park through the park there one morning, and some guy was jogging, some very fit, you know, entrepreneur or whatever, and stopped and said, what are you? And Ajahn Sumedho said, I'm a Buddhist monk. I'm actually a forest monk. Um, and I'm out on alms round, just receiving whatever offerings. That's how we live. Um, but we actually have a little apartment. That's all we've been offered, and we take what's offered. But we usually live out in the forest. And the man looked at him and said, oh, I've been wondering what to do with this beautiful forest I have down <clears throat> in uh, Cantor, wherever it was. Um, could I, it'd be lovely to have some monks there. May I make a little offering? And he put in a little piece of paper and offered them 80 acres of land that became Jithurst Monastery. So pays to go out, and, you know. <laughs> but here's the important, here's the important point for us, because we're talking about the heavenly messengers, right? <clears throat> the other reason Ajahn Sah said that you have to go out every morning, even if you get nothing in your bowl, is because you are the fourth of the heavenly messengers, and you don't know but that the Buddha, to be the next Buddha, or one of the next Buddhas, is there, you know, walking down one of the market streets in London, and will look up and see you and go, oh yes, oh yes, there is a, there is a way to follow, and I must find this way. So you have to carry that. And in fact, what Ajahn Sumedho was carrying was the teachings of death, of the deathless, of that which transcends birth and death. And his monastery in England, many of you know of it, is called Amravati, which is uh, means the deathless. The gates to the deathless are open. So you have to go out and offer to the world of birth and death a different vision. Now, what is that? What does that mean? <clears throat> when Ajahn Chah practiced as a monk, he became a monk as a young man, and being one of those way young men are, you know, is there anything difficult to do around here kind of young men, um, became an ascetic in the forest and lived in the caves and practiced out in the wilds for years and did samadhi practice and visions in jhana and had all kinds of insights and so forth. And he went to see Ajahn Man, who was a the most well-known meditation master of the last century of the forest teachers of Thailand and Laos. After about eight years of traveling and practicing ardently, and he said, may I have a consult with you, basically? Ajahn Man said, certainly. So he stayed there and that next day, he sat with him and he said, here are the insights, here are the visions, my, here's, the, here's the understandings I've come to, you know, dissolve my body in this way, see the nature of this and that, and have these samadhi jhana experiences. And Ajahn Man just shook his head. And he said, Cha, you've missed the point. He said, those are just experiences. All those years, those are just experiences. The only question is, to whom do they happen? Who is having these experiences? Turn your attention back to what is best translated as the one who knows. This was the language Ajahn Chah. Turn your attention back to the knowing, to the consciousness itself, because this is the gateway to the deathless, the gateway to liberation. All those are changing experiences, but who are you really?
Um, and so that became the teaching that Ajahn Chah carried underneath all the other forms that he taught, um, which is to rest in awareness itself. You could call it loving awareness. That way it's clearly not a judgmental way. To become loving awareness, that you are the awareness that knows experience, and yet like a mirror, uh, which is an image that the Buddha used at times. Consciousness knows experience, but when the mirror, you can bring <clears throat> in front of the mirror pleasant experiences, painful experiences, horrible demons, beautiful, you know, gods and goddesses, and the mirror simply knows what's there. Now, this sounds like a nice kind of Zogcheni type teaching, right? Cool. But what does it speak to us in our own direct experience? It's very simple. When you go back to your room, look in the mirror, and you will notice that you have aged, right? Sagging, wrinkling, losing fur, whatever. It just happens, okay? But the weird thing is that when you look in the mirror and you notice that you've aged, you don't necessarily feel older. Everybody know that experience? And that's because in that moment, you recognize, oh, it's drooping, you know, it's getting, it's changing its color, it's sagging, it's whatever it does. Wes said, the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard. That was his description of it all, right? It's aging. But consciousness, that's just the body. And you're looking and say, well, look at that animal. You know, it's getting a little wrinkly. Um, but the consciousness that knows is there apparent to you in that moment saying, don't feel older, because consciousness doesn't exist in time. The body is born and dies and it exists in time. But awareness itself is timeless, deathless, unborn, undying, transparent like the sky, like a mirror. And that's not far away. It's right there in your own experience. What's required is that shift of identity. As, uh, as Ajahn Man said, you've missed the point. You're worried about the experiences. Look into the one who knows. Become the knowing, the one who knows. Now, when I first started to meditate very intensively in a monastery, I remember I was doing this Mahasi practice where you would sit and walk 18 hours a day, you know, and then take a little bit of sleep and then get up and do it again. I did that for more than a year in silence, just trying to see where it would take me. Um, and one afternoon, I was really tired. I didn't, I liked my sleep and I wasn't sleeping that much and I was pushing it, you know, and I, I started falling asleep. I said, all right, I'll let myself have a little nap but I don't want to sleep very long because I'm going to get enlightened. That's what I thought in those days. You know, we all have our delusions. Um, and um, so I said, I'll lie down on the wooden floor of my hut. That way it'll be uncomfortable. I won't lie on my little mat. And after a little bit, I'll wake within 15 or 20 minutes. That's my intention. Back on my zafu. So I lay down and 15, 20 minutes later, I got up turned around and very slowly walked. It was kind of a long, narrow little hut to the other end, and there was a little window out. And 
I saw in the distance my teacher sitting outside of his hut, and there was a little garden, and he was talking to somebody. Very slowly, mindfully, I was doing kind of the real super slow zombie thing, you know, very, very slow. Then I turned around. I thought, somebody's in here. And there was a body lying on the floor just where I had laid down. And I went, oh, that's me. You know, and it was the first of many out-of-the-body experiences. They're not uncommon for people who've had accidents or surgery. I mean, you've had out-of-the-body experiences, just to know. See, there you go. But it was another beginning of the teaching that who we are is not this physical body. We inhabit it. You get it. But it's not your identity. In Bali, they say that the people who are closest to the gods are newborns who've just come in and their spirit has just taken the clothing of a body. And people who are very close to the end of life who are about to release it. And the people farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, basically. (laughs) So when you are present for old age, sickness, death, the question is, who are you really? And the Buddhist texts begin, Theravada, Tibetan, oh, oh, nobly born, oh, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget your true nature. Do not forget who you really are. And so when you have explored and started to shift identity from the believing this body is who you are, or the content of experience, to becoming the loving awareness, which is what you are, the witnessing of it, then you can actually be present with an understanding heart for people who are going through all the changes that incarnation brings you. Now, the thing is that even as you practice in this way, and you have some sense of this, which you can, and we'll do one, probably don't have time for two practices, but You've been, most of you have been practicing a lot, so you understand at least in your own practice ways what I'm talking about. You will be tested. So you'll think you understand or you'll feel like, okay, I'm not the body. I am the awareness and the consciousness. And even the I am the consciousness when you look deeply dissolved and you realize there is consciousness. The whole sense of I as separate also starts to dissolve. So when I came back from the monastery in 1970s, I'd been practicing very intensely and had this profound equanimity. My mind was so still. My gosh, it makes me want to go back on retreat, actually. I need it. But, and then I was driving on a, on the mass pike on the freeway and a truck I had lost blew a tire and all the stuff started to spin off the tire and Cars around were swerving, and I started to swerve, and it was like, okay, I'm about to die. And one part of me is, oh, I'm about to die. How interesting. So much equanimity, really, really peaceful. Another part of me, my body grabs the wheel, tightens and starts to, it's as if there were two people in there. There was the part that had a great deal of equanimity, and the body that's saying, not yet, baby, we're going to hang in there, and we're going to... You know, and they both have their truth to them because the animal body wants to live as well. You know, so later when five years ago or six years ago, whenever it was that I 
passed out in front of a retreat and then started to have all these tremors and passed out again, had all these neurological problems, and then was misdiagnosed with something where they said, you have this genetic disorder, which I do have, um, but the misdiagnosis was um, because this is happening quickly. It was, uh, I see it saw this, had all these tests, and a few weeks later it got worse and worse. You have this disorder. You will be probably dying relatively soon within this year, um, and also it's accompanied by loss of memory and dementia. It was not the news I wanted to hear. Um, I thought I'd have a more peaceful death in some way, and I got frightened. Even though I'd sat with the charnel grounds and done my own death meditation and things like that, um, I was surprised how scared I got and how much anxiety. I thought, oh, my God, people live with anxiety all the time. I have so little of it in my life. Um, and it took a while to kind of regain my balance with that. Turned out it was the wrong diagnosis that, that helped. Um, and I'm, I'm mostly better. But it wasn't just that. It was just that it took its time. Um, so I went and remember going and telling Ramdas about this, you know, talking about this with him. He said, oh, yeah, I flunked the test several times, you know, um, where I thought I'm really chill with, you know, death. And then it came as a, wait a second, it's not quite as easy as, you know, I've been telling people. Um, so you will be tested in some way. And I just came back from teaching a big event in Seattle on Buddhist psychology for 700 people. And it was lovely, and we did all these, we did equanimity and compassion practice and metta and resting and awareness and all these trainings and so forth. And in between, people would come up to me and talk about the child who died, you know, or their son with mental illness, you know, or their partner who had a stroke and they're having to take care of them. You know, what do I do? Or my daughter who's a meth addict or something, you know, and I have to take care of the grandchildren, you know, or the n nurses. There was a few of them who came who work in the um, neonatal ICU, taking care of these tiny little preemies where a fair number of them die, you know. And what do you do with that? And it's not just somebody telling you the story. It's their son. It's their spouse. It's the person they care about the most in the world, you know. And then there's a lot of emotion with it, right? I mean, somebody asked about grief. So I was teaching with Pema Chodron in San Francisco, an evening on compassion. Um, and there was two or 3,000 people. It was a big hall. And uh, at the end, we were taking questions. And this young woman stood up. Uh, and she said in this quavering and very raw voice, um, my partner just committed suicide 10 days ago. And she was so shaken and so upset. And, you know, it's pretty wild, actually, because suicide is a very complicated thing. Um, there's grief, but also there's guilt. You know, what did I miss? What could I have done? There's anger, how dare you? You know, how could you do this? There's shame. There's every intense emotion. All of it gets triggered by suicide. It's a very complex and powerful. And so she was shaking. And Pema just said, ah, feel your feet. Breathe. Bring in compassion. Hold the whole experience, the grief, the anger, the fear, the loss. Uh, just be, be, become held by the goddess of compassion 
and it, you could feel her begin to settle down a little bit. Um, but it was still really intense. And then I could feel how lonely she was. Um, so I asked how alone she felt. How many others in this room have also experienced the suicide of someone you love who's really close to you in your family or close by? You don't have to raise your hands, although you could, um, because I asked it in that room. And I don't know, 200 people stood up. And I said, would you please, to this young woman, would you please look around and, and those of you who are standing, just, you know, offer her your gaze. And I tell you, the room turned into a temple. It was like there was her heart that was torn open. And here were 200 people saying, we're with you. We understand. Yes. So who are you? And what is natural and how do you stand or sit in the presence of this mystery? And Ajahn Chah would do different kinds of teachings, but there was an old nun who came to see him at one point, and she said, give me teachings about death. She was getting close. And he said, why do you want to know about death, old woman? You know, he used to poke fun at people. He said, that's the language of children. Aren't you wiser than that? He said, there is no death. There was no one born, no one to own things. This body isn't who you are, and neither are the thoughts or the feelings. Certainly not your possessions. No one is born, no one dies, no self. You know, you talk about death, it's the language of children. Remember who you really are. You are the unborn. You are consciousness itself. And you could feel in that the whole circumstance change, not because he was giving some teachings, but because he was there, because he was resting in that knowing. The Anguttara Nikaya. It seems that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. You know, and this is the wild mystery. You feel, me too, got this whole life and personality and identity and things you love in people. Um, it's temporary. That's really kind of crazy, isn't it? So how do you navigate the unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears that make up human incarnation? Because just look around the world and it's got both. The charnel grounds full on one hand, and then the new life springing forth. No matter what you do, it will come back. As the poet Pablo Neruda says, you can... You can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. That there's both death and there's renewal. And that's us. That's what life actually is. So, contrasts of deaths. My mom, 91, losing her memory, really good-hearted person, gracious, easy, caring. So the people around her, she was in a um, an aid song in Hayes Valley in a assisted living, she was well cared for, and, you know, my brothers and I and family, we came around her, and there's kind of, 
this wild thing, or there's death, but there's also so much love that it was like a love fest at the same time. And she's lying there, and the, some days before we could tell her stories or make her laugh or things like that, you know. My twin brother, who's really um, badmash, they call it in Hindi, which means bad, um, but in a playful way. Um, so I'm saying, I asked my mom, what do you think happens when you die? She says, I don't know. It's a mystery. Everything's a mystery. She said, I'm not going to be here, but people are going to go to other planets. You know, they're going to do all these things. Because when she was a kid, said there were more horses on the streets in Philadelphia than there were cars, right? And the gaslighter. She said, I've seen so much. I don't know what's coming next. I said, well, what's going to come when you die? She said, I don't know, you know. And I'd been with my brothers. We'd just gone to watch a rocket launch at Vandenberg Air Force Base. My twin brother wanted to do that Atlas V rocket. It was really kind of wonderful and amazing. And so my twin brother grabs the, the bed where she's lying like this and says, Mom, you're going to leave your body. You're going to go on a trip, maybe like a rocket. And he goes, and starts shaking the bed. We're taking off. And everyone's facing, you can't do that. You're going to go to Mars. You're going to go beyond, you know. I mean, it's like, okay, we take death seriously, but not too seriously. Right. So we're all around. But then a couple days later, it got harder for her. She had more pain. And then she had, you know, Frank, Franco will know it. Then she started to get the death rattle which is basically just accumulation of fluid, you know. But it's a very hard thing to have somebody that you love not be able to breathe well. You know, with each breath, you think they're going to drown in their own fluids in some way. Then they gave her atropine, and that dried her up. Atropine, by the way, comes from belladonna, right? Um, and its name, belladonna, taken in the right dose, its Italian name, is because women in the middle or the dark ages or whatever would take a little bit of it because it would make you flush and your pupils would get dilated and it would purportedly make you more attractive in some way. I'm not recommending it, but anyway. I mean, this is what we do with our bodies. It's a really wild thing, you know? How will we attract one another for a while, right? Um but then she became more peaceful, and at some point she said, oh, I see light. And my youngest brother, Kenneth, said, oh, Mom, how is it? How's that light look? Is it any good? He said, oh, it's good. He said, oh, great, enjoy it, you know, rest in that. So she had a relatively peaceful death most of the time. Um, and it is kind of amazing, though, because you watch the elements dissolve. Have you done that in here? Have you talked? Next one. Okay, so I won't read a whole passage about how the body and the elements, but there, it's, you'll, you, it's coming. You'll get that. You are that, by the way, so that's okay. Then we'll get there. But it's so mysterious. It's like at the very end, <coughs> it's like being with a falling star because it's silent, and yet something momentous is happening and nothing at all. All these things. And the gates between the worlds open. Who are we? Now, my dad was the opposite. He was terrified of dying. He was a scientist, a biophysicist, and also a, <clears throat> a paranoid person um, in the um, DSM sense of that word, um, the, the, the real deal. Um, and um, he had congestive heart failure. He would had, had some heart surgery, but 
this time when he was ready to die. Well, the time before, when before he had his heart surgery, when I thought he was going to die, everyone said his kidneys have shut down, his body function is gone. That was when you could go in the ICU for like 15 minutes. It was very intensive trying to keep him alive. And they said he's got a 10% chance to live. I went and I held his hand and breathed with him a little bit. Uh, and then because I thought I might not see him, even though he was an abusive and difficult person, he was still my father. And I'd worked through a lot. And I said, I, yeah, and I said, I, you know, I don't know if I'll see you, Dad, but I just want you to know I love you. He took his hand and arm, which was intubated, all the tubes and wires and stuff, brought it up to his nose, shook his head like that was the smelliest thing you could ever say to a person. We don't say that shit in my in our family, right? Go away. You know, and um, I, he died in character. It was okay. It was all right. He was a strong-willed person. But what I realized, you know, I could have taken it personally, which you can around death, especially when it's your parents. But in fact, nobody ever said that to him. The reason he couldn't hear it is his parents never said it to him. He didn't know that. He didn't know what to do with that. Anyway, so he survived and lived another 10 years, and now he's 75 and back in the ICU. And because he built the, some of the earliest artificial hearts and lungs and all kinds of stuff in that, knew all this stuff, he kept looking over and taught in medical school. He kept looking over at the monitor to make sure he hadn't died yet. <laughs> Seriously, about every few minutes, okay? Or he was afraid he'd die and no one would know. I said, you'll know. It's all right. You know, and then I said, so what happens when you die, Dad? <clears throat> said nothing, dirt, you know. He's a materialist, science. The brain creates things, and then when the brain's gone, that's it, right? Um, but he was so afraid that I'd sit there long days and get to late at night, be midnight, one in the morning, I get so tired. I said, I've got to go home. I've got to go rest back to your apartment. And he would say, please don't go. Please don't go. So I would just stay because people don't want, and they shouldn't be left alone. So I said, so what do you think happens? You think you just go back to dirt? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me tell you about my out-of-the-body experiences. Let me tell you about my past life memories. Let me tell you about various other things. And all around the world, people in all the other major cultures not only believe, but the mystics and the shamans and so forth have these experiences um, and I've sat with a lot of people who are dying or near-death experiences, and they almost die and come back, and they've seen light. And what's going to happen to you is that you will release your body. You'll float out. You'll see some form of light. You'll recognize that the body isn't who you are in some fashion or other, you know, and then you'll begin a whole different journey. Um, and he shook his head. I said, listen, you're a scientist, right? So at least you keep an open mind. And if it happens, remember, I told you so. <laughs> and so. Okay, so here we are, incarnate in a human body. I'm kind of peering at you all, thinking about this. Little fur at one end, or in some cases losing its fur, but and a few other patches of fur, right? As I like to say, 
a hole at one end where you stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up and glug them down through the tube. You ambulate in a bipedal way by falling one direction. You catch yourself, then you fall the other way. You catch yourself. You have vestigial tail, right, and vestigial claws that you needed, or maybe you still need, depending who you live with. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was peeing the other day and just looking at all this water coming out, like you cycle water through this organism. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. Or sex. I mean, making love is a really cool thing. It's fantastic, in fact. But it is weird. <laughs> it is. We lick and suck on different parts of each other's bodies, right? Okay. We put different parts in different ways, right? Okay. And then a little squirt here and there, whatever. And then we make a new, oh, here's a new human being. Come on. This is really mysterious. Who are you and how did you get into the body? Because it's just not true that the body is who you are. And I remember Nisargadot, my teacher in Bombay, being asked um, how it was for him as an old man, you know, facing death. And he, he, he liked this sort of, he had an attitude anyway. He, stood, he said, how dare you? call me an old man facing death. He said, I have nothing to do with this food body, this thing that's made out of japatis and dal. You think that's me? You know, this food body? Come on. He said, I was never born. I can never die. Well, what about God? We meet. He said, oh, the gods, they're just your imagination. He said, who I am is beyond all of that. And you want to talk to me about death? You know nothing. You know, go sit in the back. Whatever. <laughs> But if you look in the Buddhist text, the Buddha says the same thing. Uh, when uh, he's approached by uh, uh, a person, a man, who says, how is it, uh, blessed one? You know, you're a Buddha. I, I have a serious question to ask. How can we human beings live so as not to be seen by the king of death? And the Buddha's response, what's, which, what's the name of that guy? Who, who asked the Buddha that question starts with an M. It's not Magandhi, it's Mogarajan or something like that. Anyway, it's, I think it's in the Majjhima. And the Buddha says, for one who does not take sights and sounds and tastes and smell, for one who does not take this body, these thoughts and feelings to be I and mine, who does not claim as a self the five skandhas, the five aggregates, such a one is not seen by the king of death. And this is an amazing teaching. Or in the Anattapindika Sutta, which is in the Machimanikaya, and Anattapindika, they're very, very sick and dying, this great benefactor. And the Buddha sends his wisest disciple, Sariputta. And Sariputta says, how are you, layman? Are you getting better? You know, are you feeling any more chipper? And Anattapindika says, I am not better. I am not chipper. As a matter of fact, it's as if... Someone tied an iron band around my head and was tightening it. And the, someone was firing up the forge and building fires around my body. He goes, this whole description of how much suffering he's in. And then Sariputta says, then you should contemplate thus. Self, I am not I. I am not visible objects. I am not the ear. I am not the sounds that touch it. I am not the nose, the tongue. I am not the body and the sensations in the body. I'm not the thoughts or perceptions or this 
consciousness that's identified. I am none of these. Thus, you should contemplate and liberate yourself from this identification with the body. And Anatta Pekindika says, oh, that helps. Versus response, thank you, that helps. It does. It's that very profound attachment, not identifying, because identification is the game. And then he says, why have you never taught me this? And Sariputta says, this is the teachings that we have reserved for the monastic order. And Anathapinda says, may I ask of you in the Blessed One a request before I die, that you offer the, these deep teachings to us as lay people as well as to the monastics. And so, you know, when you go to Amravati or when you read in the text, it says underneath the doors to the deathless are open. It is through this practice of the shift of identity that the doors to the deathless are open. I don't know, am I speaking to your themes? Am I getting there? Okay, I have a little bit more to do and then we'll do one or two practices depending on the time that we have. And I'll take some questions too. All right, so here's Jack sitting up here, <clears throat> spinning these stories and so forth. How to understand this? You already know. You already understand. This is not something new that I'm telling you. We can identify. I mean, you identify with your opinions, sorry to say. You identify with your looks. You identify with your role. You know, you're the son or the daughter when you're with your parents. You're the parent when you're with your kids. You know, you're the uncle or the aunt when you're niece or nephew. You're the boss when you have employees. You're the employee when you have a boss. You switch roles all the time. Who are you? Identification has this mysterious capacity to, you know, I can feel myself. This is me, and I'll touch this hand, and the skin is a little dry, like it's an object, and I, we're in the desert. I need to go and get some lotion to keep, you know, over the next couple of weeks to not be itchy. And then I become, this is me now, and I touch these fingernails, and this one's a little long, needs to be trimmed. And so identification is here, and that's the object. You can put your identification anywhere. You know, you can identify as a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Buddhist or whatever weird thing you want. And then you let go and you're something else later. But you know that that's not all of who you are. So Alice Walker writes, One day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happened, you just can't miss it. And you know it from walking in the mountains or listening to a magnificent piece of music and losing yourself or making love or sitting there at the bedside of someone who's dying or someone who's being born, you know, all these mysterious moments where the gates open and you remember that you're not just this separate self. You are separate in a tentative way and you need to remember that separateness. As Ramdas says, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, right? You have sort of both sides of the equation. But it's not who you are. And I have a couple of other dear beloveds um, who told me the story of giving birth. A woman I know, colleague, who 
was quite young when she had her first baby. And it was, you know, back in the 60s, um, early 60s, I think. And she'd done a little bit of yoga practice, which was sort of rare then. Anyway, it was a really long and difficult, arduous labor. And she was left alone for certain hours in the hospital, which shouldn't happen, but did happen. And she was there frightened because it was so intense and it was going on and on. And how can I bear this and do this? The level of pain, she said. And then it wasn't just that she floated out of her body. That's what it felt like at first. But the body was so intense. She said, then what happened? I'm lying there and I'm so afraid and I'm so frightened and I don't know what to do and I feel lost and my body's doing all this. And then all of a sudden, I became something different. I became not me, but all the mothers of the world. She said, something changed in my consciousness. And I realized at this moment that there were 230,000 other women in labor, you know, in Africa and in China, and that we were the mothers who were giving birth to the next generation and that we were life itself giving birth to its new form of life. She said, and everything changed. That was her beginning, really, of her Dharma life. So you know this. There's some way in which, in your own experience, you know that you're not just your body. You know that you're not limited in this way. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has that beautiful book, No Death, No Fear. Do most of you know that? Is that part of your curriculum? It, it well might be. I would recommend it as a, in which he talks about realizing that as he walked in the moonlight missing his mother, who had died not long before. He said, all of a sudden, I realized that she was in me, that I was her, and that my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil with the moonlight on us, that she could never go anywhere because I was life continuing. So, you sit with the dying, the aging, the people losing memory, <clears throat> and I see is the aging part, especially being pe- with people losing memory, that it is, um, it's death in slow-mo, basically. It is the bardo between the worlds happening while you still have a body. And so if you think that person's still going to be that person, um, you suffer a lot because you want them to hold that identity, but their memory and all those things are gone. But if you realize they've already started to make their transition. And it might take a year or in some cases five years or something like that. But they're in the bardo. You know, they're in the, they're in the transition between lives. Um, and they're just doing it while they're still in their body. And then you can accept that. That's, they're not who they were anymore. But how to do this? Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells and call out to the gods. But watch out for the gods will come and they will fire up the forge and put you on their anvil and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. And so the suffering and the difficulty and the shock and all of that is actually not a problem. It's all messengers as the program is. It's all the wake up that says, remember who you really are. And then as you do, you begin to trust that you can die and be reborn over and over. I mean, every morning you're reborn at breakfast. And at night, it's such a weird thing. How many people, you don't even have to raise your hand, 
long for a good night's sleep. I just want to go unconscious, please, for a long time, restfully, you know. And if you can't get it, how horrible it is, right? What a bizarre, talk about mystery, that mammals, you know. I don't know if lizards do it, but <clears throat> reptiles, anybody know? Reptiles sleep, they do. That's right, I take it back. But anyway, what a mysterious thing that we love going completely unconscious and losing our identity. And we have no fear of it at all. Our fear is actually that we're not going to get a good night's sleep. I mean, we are really strange creatures. But it's actually, oh, let me lie down and become completely unconscious and disappear. How great. <laughs> and then you have weird dreams. My mom came in my dream last night. Thank you, Mama. She was in her very thoughtful and considerate way. We're preparing the memorial for the end of next month. Do you need anything you boys need? I said, no, okay, you died. It's okay. That's all we needed for this memorial. <laughs> right. But my out-of-the-body experiences, which, you know, 20% of you have had, um, sitting with people who are dying, my own experiences of doing samadhi practice and jhana practice and metta where, or other practices, where I literally dissolve my body into light, you know, and then send light out from my body. And that takes a lot of samadhi. And for me, it wasn't even that easy. I had to work hard to do it. But it's kind of cool that it happens. Uh, okay, you're not the body. You actually, each of you have your own way of having those experiences. Um, and um, when I first went to see Ajahn Chah, I didn't believe any of this stuff. He talked about, you know, the Buddhist cosmology a little bit, not that much. And I said, I don't believe that stuff. I'm son of a scientist. And he said, you don't have to believe it. You're born and you die moment by moment. All of the Buddhist teachings of birth and death happen every single day, every single moment. You don't have to believe anything. So from the beginning, I didn't believe anything. Now, I've shifted a little bit. I believe everything sort of changed, you know. Because of these experiences, very deep meditation, dissolving, becoming light out of the body experiences, being the loving awareness, but also, since we're just getting down here, taking peyote <clears throat> with this wonderful Don Jose Rios, 103-year-old Huichol shaman that I studied with, and, you know, rattling and puking and doing peyote all night, <clears throat> these rituals, and then becoming, you know, the redwood tree and the salmon and so forth, not just this body, or taking LSD, not just in Haight-Ashbury, which I did, right, the little wagon and the Fillmore, whatever, <clears throat> take cups of tea. But, um, uh, I mean, doing it in a more formal way, and I remember lying there once and feeling a little bit stuck, because you go through these death-rebirth experiences, which I also have done in holotropic breathwork that we've led in this room for 20 years, you know, and then the person who was guiding my session said, well, let's, let's use a little light to drive the brainwave, see what happens. And they brought a strobe light. So here I am tripping, right? I'm really <clears throat> high-dose LSD. And then they turn on the light, and it starts to flash white like that. Really brilliant strobe light. And I go, oh, the stars. Look at this. Oh, And then the strobe gets faster and faster. And like in that moment in Star Wars where um, they first go to hyperspeed, you know, and everything, you know, turns black and then white and it turns upside down. And all of a sudden, I am not here anymore. I am out in the vastness. Any sense of identity. I'm, galaxies are way back there, you know. Um, different kinds of tripping, basically. Um, 
and and at different times also experiencing in-death rebirth process. For example, I had one long trip where um, I kept coming back into life in the womb of someone um, and then getting aborted. And I had this conversation, good God, was it last night? Night before last, we had a dinner out, Michael Harner and Sandra Harner, he's the head of the Shamanic Foundation and one of the world's great shaman experts, and uh, Stan Christina Groff and a couple of other friends in honor of um, Angelus Arian, who we all work with for years together. And someone had asked me from, the, from Jerry Brown's office from Sacramento, there's a bioethics board that was created for California. <clears throat> about some of these really tricky questions, not just about abortion, but about mm, stem cells or the creation of different forms of life or things like that, and what should we do and what shouldn't we do. Michael and I are talking about it, and I said, it seems to me that instead of getting some philosophy or some religion about it, what you do is you go into a non-ordinary state, you know, and you become the, that particular creature. And then you ask it, you know, what is it like? So there I am. And Michael says, exactly. He said, he said you tell the people that in Sacramento, I'll come and lead the, you know, a shaman's journey if they want bioethical questions. And they can, they can talk, talk about it, you know. I mean, find out from the inside. So there I am. And I'm this little tiny fetus. And then I can feel that I'm about to be aborted. And I didn't want to be aborted because when life takes life, it, it has its own, there's a, uh, a life force in it, which you see when the, even when it's time to die, the, the body doesn't die easily. It wants to hold on. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's this animal body. And so there I am, but I, I know, whoops, something's coming and it's an abortion coming. Um, I actually went through seven of them in a row in this particular session. Um, but the end, and then I started, there was this like little tiny high pitched, like, you know, don't do this to me, and then gone, and then into the void, into into a kind of luminous darkness, and then a little while later, whoop, pop back into another room. The interesting thing about it was that I didn't have much of a personality. I didn't have relations with people. I didn't have all the complex identity that's so hard to let go of at the end of your life. It was just the pure beingness that didn't want to let go. And then I cycled through it a bunch of times. You can believe it or not. I leave it to you. But since we're having this conversation, we actually have to have this conversation, you know, and not kind of make it make it philosophical. How many people in this room have, as a man with your partner or as a woman yourself, had an abortion? Half the room, probably, you know. So this mystery is not something far away. And you know Yvonne Rand, the wonderful Zen teacher who lived at Muir Beach for a long time, made a whole set of very moving rituals for water babies, for stillborn, for babies that were aborted. Because if you pretend it's a medical procedure, um, you know, yet there's the grief, there's the loss, there's all the possibility. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when it isn't the right thing. It's not coming down on that at all. It's much more mysterious and complicated than that. Um, but it needs to be honored. We are in this process of giving birth all the time. 
And what do we do with this? All is mine made, says the Buddha. So I was there under the Bodhi tree um, in March in Bodhgaya with all the pilgrims streaming by and the Tibetans doing their chanting and blowing their horns and the Chinese with their little drums doing a kind of, you know, Japanese chanting, Chinese chanting, Sri Lankan chanting, all this kind of river of pilgrims um, and just sitting there and then there's a place where there are the seven um, or 20 actually stone lotuses that was the Buddha's walking path. So I did my walking there and kept thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh and how he, you know, when he walked, well, when he came to Spirit Rock a couple of times and you know, there's two or 3,000 people on the hillside and we're sitting and meditating and then they give out apples and everyone does this very slow eating of an apple. That mysterious thing of putting another part of the earth into your body, you know, cheese from Wisconsin. Hi, I'm now partly Wisconsin, right? Or peaches from Georgia. I'm now the South too. It's wild. And so we're, we're sitting there meditating, eating our apples. Uh, and then Thich Nhat Hanh walks out and he walks so slowly and mindfully that the whole field of these 3,000 people goes, oh, right, mindfulness. It's like it was palpable. And then I thought about the Buddha getting up from his seat as I'm walking, you're walking there. And for 45 years, walking the muddy and dusty roads of India and coming into a village or a town with so much peace, and so much presence and mindfulness, like Thich Nhat Hanh, that people would say, oh, wow, who is this guy? What does he understand? You know, let's talk to him. And the Buddha carrying the deathless, really carrying that understanding that you are not who you think you are. You are part of something so much bigger. And yes, you have an incarnation now, and that's fine. You know, it's like wearing clothes, right? You change them once in a while, wash them even if you're lucky. And sitting under the tree, chanting the Heart Sutra, form is not different than emptiness. Emptiness is not different than form. The Buddha's most profound realization of emptiness itself, that we are not the forms of the world. We are emptiness giving birth to form. We are consciousness, the field of consciousness that gives birth to form. Form is not different than emptiness. But because it also goes on to say, emptiness is emptiness and form is form. When Suzuki Roshi died, he said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. You know, maybe everyone will suffer because of the physical or the spiritual agony, but that's not a problem. It would be, if you had a limitless life, that would be the real problem for you. You know, if I suffer, that's just suffering, Buddha. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha. If you take human incarnation, you get joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, the ocean of tears, the unbearable beauty, birth and death. That's what incarnation is. And you get it for a while in this form, and then you get a new form. 
I have other stories to tell, but I'm going to stop here and pause. And let's just sit for a minute or two just to hold these stories and Who are you really? Are you this body that was little as an infant, and then as a young child, and then as a teenager, in your 20s and 40s and 60s? Changes all the time. Are you this body? Are you the feelings? Pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, sad, happy, excited, frightened? agonized, appreciative, loving, joyful, calm. Are you the thoughts, that river of thoughts? Opinions, are you your views? Also conditioned, all these conditioned experiences. Be the one who knows, says Ajahn Chah. Rest in loving awareness. You are loving awareness. You are the witnessing. Not the witness, but the witnessing itself. Relax into it, trust it. It is your home.